Is anybody else surprised how quickly time goes by? Oh, it's nuts, isn't it? It's just crazy how time's, time just flies. I was um, looking back through uh, kind of our, my preaching calendar to see when was the last time we talked about the story of Joseph. And if I'm not mistaken, in the, the summer of 2013, we actually surveyed the congregation and asked for you guys to tell us what your favorite Bible stories were. And again, I'm, I'm relying on my memory, which makes me pause for a second. But if I'm not mistaken, the story of Joseph was the number one most favorite story of the people at Northside Baptist Church. And again, if I'm not mistaken, Scott Crouch preached his very first sermon ever um, on the story of Joseph. So I think Scott probably voted for it 50 times just so he could kind of get things to work out so that he got to preach on his own favorite story. But uh, there's, there are so many things that are compelling about the story of Joseph. We're continuing in our series about last words. And uh, when I began researching this, we didn't, I didn't really plan, deliberate on going kind of consecutively and chronologically through the, the last words of the patriarchs. It just kind of made sense to talk about Abraham's last words and Isaac's last words and Jacob's last words. And this morning, we find ourselves coming to um, Joseph's last words. And there are so many things about this story that just make it, make it precious to, to me. Um, and I'll tell you, the, 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 the thing that I like about it is as we've gone through the stories of the patriarchs, we talked about this several weeks ago, how it's easy to idolize Old Testament saints and think like they had it easier or like their life was different. And the truth is the first three patriarchs, they weren't, they weren't dirty dogs, but they, uh, Jacob essentially, his name meant deceiver and that characterized his life. He was not a good guy. You would not want to run into Jacob uh, on, a, on a dark street because he would end up with your wallet. He would trick you out of it. You know, just not, not a good fella. Isaac, there's not a whole lot that goes on with him, but he's a very permissive parent, and he allows his kids to hate each other, basically. He's just, he's kind of a deadbeat dad in some ways. Abraham gets a lot of things right, but kind of like us, he gets a lot of things wrong, too. He, you know, he obeys God with putting Isaac on the altar, but then he lies about being married to his wife because he's afraid that the God that has given him this great promise can't protect him from a ruler who thinks that his wife is hot. So he lies about her age, and so... You come to Joseph and you actually come to the first guy that like, he's the hometown hero. Like you pull for Joseph. There's, there's, Joseph is a sinner saved by grace. There is nothing in the text of Joseph's story that is not praiseworthy. If there is anything about Joseph that you want to criticize, it's maybe a little youthful overzealousness, which come on, let's face it. Most of you could use a shot of youthful zealousness, right? It's just the way that it works. You don't discipline someone for being childish. You discipline, discipline someone from disobedience. If your kid, who's two years old, spills a cup, don't discipline him for that. He's not disobeying. He's not coordinated. He can't help but spill the cup. You don't discipline for childishness. And Joseph, in a little bit of childishness, says, hey, guys, I had this awesome dream for God. Let me tell you about it. And everybody hates him for it. Maybe a little immaturity and naivete when it comes to people skills, but he is a mature believer from almost the very first time that we meet him. He, he is the victim of circumstance because he's the favorite son of his dad, which irks all the older kids, you know? Why? You gotta make it easy for the baby of the family. But there's a picture of maturity. And what makes the story of Joseph so compelling to me is, and this is not, this is not, this is not if you're a millennial, this is not a millennial slam. This is, this is probably more a guy slam, to be fair. All the women are like, yes, um, I just don't see a lot of maturity in our world. 
like immaturity, is exalted. Irresponsibility is glorified. And when you come to Joseph, you see a man who's very mature, not just in our passage, mature in age, but mature spiritually. And I sit there and I look at Joseph and I go, "What what a great picture for people today to see someone who has spiritual maturity, even though everything on this terrestrial ball was arrayed against him. All kinds of terrible things, terrible things that happened to him. And so when we come to his last words, we do come to his last words. And they are the words of a man who is 110 years old, who is mature. But beyond that, there's a spiritual depth to him that is, is real helpful. So we're going to see a couple practical principles about how this story applies to us. And we're not going to go through all the, all the, the minutia of Joseph's life, but we'll hit some of the highlights. I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Let's just say a guilty conscience is a terrible thing to live with. They just, without you knowing all the story, they just confessed that they did something evil to their brother. Like, you know, you even know the rest of the story if you're not familiar with the Bible. You know the brothers did something really bad. And trust me, it was really bad. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. Dad's gone. It could be that Joseph's going to hate us because of all the evil things that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, uh, your father, which happens to be our father, you know, our father, but your dad, Joseph's dad, gave this command before he died. So we're not coming to you because we want to. Dad made us come to you. He commanded us to come and say this. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus, Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Jacob, their father, is dead. And the backstory is that the brothers were so despising of little Joseph that they had originally conspired to murder him. Listen, they would get rid of a problem, but there's not a lot of profit in that. So Judah, the third, uh, the fourth oldest son in the lineage, said, we don't really have anything to show if we kill him. I mean, we get rid of this newsome little brother, pesky little brother, but there's no profit. So here's my idea. Let's sell him into slavery, and we all get some coin to put in the pocket. Like, killing him would actually be a little bit better in this scenario. They're actually trying to figure out how do we profit off of our own flesh and blood. That's despicable. And so Joseph was sold into slavery um, by his own brothers who then reported to father that he'd been torn apart by some kind of wild animal. All they had was the bloody cloak and uh, just a terrible thing. So dad has died. Joseph is now the prime minister of a foreign country by the name of Egypt. There's a terrible famine in the land. And so for everyone to eat, Egypt was the only place that saw this coming and, and, and put together stockpiles. So it says that all of the world came to Egypt to receive grain 
because Joseph had interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had had and was ready. Eventually, Jacob and all of his sons come and they bow before Joseph without even realizing that it's Joseph. I mean, he's rich and he's powerful and he's got a really good tan, maybe looks like he's an Egyptian. And they're bowing before him just like he had prophesied in his prayer. And uh, dad dies and the brothers are scared. And you know what? They should be. Somebody so, everybody gets, if you have not been stabbed in the back at some point, would you please raise your hand? Because I'd be interested to know who you are. Everybody's been stabbed in the back at some point. I'll venture to say nobody's been sold by their family into slavery. It's a terrible thing. They are scared and they should be because they deserve some kind of retribution. They deserve some kind of, re- uh, um, kind of um, retrib- retribution, some kind of justice. And here's the, here's the thing that is so cool about the contrast between the brothers and Joseph. The brothers' fear of Joseph was that Joseph was just like they were. If this would have happened to us, we'd have smashed Joseph into the ground. And the great news for them is Joseph is nothing like they are. So they, 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 they come before Joseph in, in a two-act play. Number one, they have a story. They have a command. Our father commanded us to come and tell you this. Now, all right, we don't do surveys often in church. This is not, you know, trivia crack or anything like that. But here's, here's a quick question, okay? In the Bible story, it, it says, our father said to come to you and say this. How many of you think Jacob actually said that? Anybody? How many of you think the brothers made it up? Anybody think that? Yeah, I'm inclined to be in the second group. I think Jacob could have said it. The Bible doesn't say that he said it, so we have to be humble where the Bible doesn't tell us clearly. But just knowing Jacob's brothers, I think it was an outright lie. And so they are so afraid that Joseph has no grace and no mercy that they have to concoct a lie to try to guilt him into being good. I hope that nobody thinks about you that way. How quickly does your grace come out? The Bible says don't be nice to the people that are nice to you because like even the most vile sinner does that. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. You're supposed to pray for your enemy. Love those who persecute you. To pray for kings and those in authority even though the laws that they may be making are not for your prosperity but for adversity. Do people have to manipulate you to get you to be gracious? Because the brothers thought they were going to have to do that with Joseph. Then, on top of that, not only did they have their little concocted story about, hey, dad's dying words where you need to forgive us. Then they come down and they bow before him. It's an act of worship. And they say, we are your servants, literally means we are your slaves. Do with us as you want, just keep us alive. And at that point, Joseph wept. Because retribution was the furthest thing from his mind. And he saw their attempts to manipulate and to grovel he said, I, I don't need that. And the point here in all of this, in, in, in Joseph's mature spiritual walk with God, we, we come to this point that mature believers come to peace with God in all of his dealings in their life. Mature believers come to peace with all of God's dealings in their life. All of God's dealings in your life. That means the, the good, the bad, and insert a little Western whistle here. The ugly. 
Who wants ugly in your life right now? Some of you are already married to him, you know. Uh, so, you know, uh, sorry, Marcy, you're stuck with me. Um, <clears throat> nobody wants ugly in their life. Who wants an ugly situation? It's going to happen, right? It doesn't matter how much you want it, you don't want it. It's coming. It might not be as ugly as someone else's ugly, but it's ugly. You don't want it. And Joseph is so at peace with what God has done in his life, even God allowing him to be sold into slavery that he can say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Let me tell you, when it comes to developing spiritual maturity in your life, if you do not come to grips with the sovereignty of God, you will be spiritually stunted in your growth. Here's the, the most difficult thing that I, that, that I see. If this is the continuum of your life from, from birth to death, at some point, there's a speed bump in life. It's one of those ugly things. You lost a job loss of a loved one. There's something that happens. And instead of just being a speed bump where God is trying to get your attention and teach you how to trust him more, that speed bump becomes a dead end. And now someone goes, well, when I was 27 years old, my factory closed down and I lost my job and things got real hard. Okay, let's just do this because I think that this would be good. If you have ever in your life had hardship, would you raise your hand? Okay, is that, is that everybody? Did anybody not raise their hand? <clears throat> Guys, listen, life is difficult. It's just a lot more difficult when you don't trust God. And so for some people, that speed bump becomes a dead end and they're done trusting God. How dare you cause, allow my factory to close down? I, I don't think God did it. I think it was probably the crooked executives at Enron that caused your company to shut down. I think it was greedy real estate agents that caused your bank to overextend mortgages. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. I mean, God didn't do this. He allowed it. But there are other people who the exact same stuff happens, and they trust God more on the other side of the speed bump because it's not a dead end. It's a speed bump. It's a crazy thing. And, and Joseph understands God's sovereignty in all dealings. You think about this. Joseph suffered so much. He suffered from the hatred of his brothers who sold him into slavery. He, he, he's <clears throat> in prison, and God blesses him. He's kind of the golden child. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's great. He rises to prominence in the house of an uh, Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. And the only problem with Potiphar is that he's married to a wife that has the hots for Joseph. She thinks he's an attractive young man. And so in her amorous affection, um, she wants to make a, a love connection with Joseph. And he goes, I'm not, no, 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 no. And she was so in love with Joseph that once he rebuffed her affection, she lied about him and made him sound like he was a predator. Guess where he went? Right back to jail. He gets to jail and he languishes over the, the, the lost love from Potiphar's wife. And then he meets two other guys that get thrown in jail and they don't really know why they're in jail. It's the Pharaoh's cupbearer and bread maker. And they both have dreams that they can't figure out. And Joseph has this gift of interpreting dreams. And one guy has a good dream, one guy has a bad dream. One guy's going to die, one guy's going to be restored. And Joseph says to the guy, hey, we're, we're prison pals now, right? You know what I mean, they got the tattoo to prove it and everything. I mean, they're buds. They're doing hard time together. And he says, remember me when you get out. And he goes, oh, absolutely, man. We're we're thick as thieves. Well, that's probably a bad illustration. We're, we're, we're buds. We've, we've done the time together. And they get out, and it says that he forgot Joseph, and Joseph languished in prison for two years. Family, employer, cellmate, 
forgotten. Joseph suffered everywhere he went. And here at the end of, the, his little, end of this scenario, the death of his father, he can recognize that if his brothers had not sold him into slavery, he would not be in the position that he was now. And God was all over that. It's mind-boggling to think about what your life would be if one chapter was missing. That chapter that you would skip, what deficit in your character would now exist because you didn't go through that? There's a lot of things I'd propose to have skipped over, a whole lot. And I think it would be foolish because God has sovereignly arranged how our life works. Despite everything Joseph had been through, he knew two very simple facts, but just because they're simple doesn't mean that they're easy. He knew that God was sovereign. That's a, that's a big deal. He knew that God was sovereign. And, and that doesn't help because if God is sovereign and he's angry, then we all have a big problem. But not only did he know that God was sovereign, he knew that God was good. And knowing God's sovereignty and his goodness, Joseph had the opportunity to become a living illustration of a well-loved passage of Scripture. But it's a verse he never had the chance to memorize. It's not one he ever went to an evangelical Bible study on. It's one that he never heard a sermon on. Romans 8, 28, which says this, We know, we don't have to guess, we don't hope, we know. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I love this. We are told that God is working for our good in all things and that we can know it. It's completely anachronistic to use a New Testament verse to refer back to Joseph. But isn't Romans 8.28 the story of Joseph's life? God causing all things to work together for good. Number two. This is a truth not about man, but a truth about God. And it's kind of behind the scene with everything that's going on with Joseph. And it's this, that God is relentless in the pursuit of his plan of blessing the nations. God is relentless in the pursuit of his plan to bless the nations. He's just said that behind all the events, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, the terrible, the the joyful and the sad, lies the unchanging plan of God. He says that what you meant for evil, God meant for, what's the word? What was it? Somebody, somebody's reading along. It's what? It's good. It's good. End of Genesis, we hear God use evil for good. And that should immediately, if you know your Bibles, bring to mind something that you have heard before. Have you heard the word good in the book of Genesis anywhere before? Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. It was the first day, God did this, God did this, the sun rose, the sun set, and it was, ah, you know this story. Day two, God did this, God did this, and it was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. Day five, it was good. Day six, he made man and woman in his image, and behold, it was very good. God's plan doesn't change. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis, God is working for good. Now, he didn't have, any, he didn't have evil to deal with in Genesis chapter 1. And we sit there and go, God uses evil? That has got to be below God. Like, God is holy. God is righteous. God is good. God is faithful. God is, put whatever your adjective is, God is positive. How can he use evil? Well, listen, you have now stumbled upon one of the greatest theological debates and questions of the time. And, and I'll tell you this, if God can't use evil, I don't know who wants to form the committee to get that symbol down, 
But the cross is the epitome of God using evil to accomplish his plan. The death, the murder of Christ, who wasn't just innocent, he was sinless, is the most diabolical evil, the most intentional sin that God uses for the most glorious ends possible, the salvation of man. Men who have rebelled against God have gone from being his enemy to now being adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God. Guys, if God can't use evil for his good purposes, then we have no way except syrupy sentimentality to make sense of the cross. And the cross is not some syrupy sentiment. sentiment. It is the victory of God that we sang about this morning. God is accomplishing his plan. And in Joseph's day and age, he couldn't put long-term distance on what the plan was. He just knew in his day and age, God was going to save his people from famine. God's still in the process of saving people from famine. It's just not physical famine. It's spiritual famine. Christ is saving people. He is the creator of history. He is the pivot of history from B.C. to A.D. He is the point of history. He is the culmination of history. God is saving people through Christ. And Jesus, again, is the prime example of God using suffering, God using terrible things in order to advance His plan. It's interesting because Joseph foreshadows Christ in uh, many ways. In uh, the early church, Christ was, because of God's adoption, Christ was referred to as our elder brother, who advocates for us to be adopted in. Uh, Christ, in his incarnation, went to a foreign land to bring us back to God. Like, we don't get to heaven. Jesus creates the bridge that we can cross to get back to God. In the same way, Joseph crossed the, the bridge, the international boundary of the promised land to Egypt to go before his brothers to ensure their salvation. Same way that Jesus did. Joseph was the favorite of his father in the same way that God said, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus was the favorite son of his father. Both were sold by the people that they were serving And both rose to the highest position of power imaginable for Joseph in a political social event, for Jesus in a spiritual and cosmic uh, significance. Hated by their brothers that they came to save, yet innocent on both parts, sinless on Jesus' part. Behind the whole Joseph story is a God story working out his plan of doing good and blessing the nations. Number three, (coughs) mature believers... (coughs) Mature believers gladly give grace to those who have wronged them. Joseph makes very clear, hey, I'm here to comfort you, not to pay you back. Now, listen, you want to talk about what grace is. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. He didn't need to comfort them. He just needed to not afflict him, and he would have been a good guy, right? His brothers had done terrible to him, and they thought Joseph was going to do terrible in retribution. So for Joseph to be a good guy... All he needed to do was not be a bad guy. Is that what he did? No, he comforted them. He, didn't, he, he said it's not neutrality, it's blessing. So he went further to encourage his brothers, to comfort them, to promise that he was going to provide for them. He says, hey, I'm not God. Okay? Some of you might need to underline and highlight that verse in your Bible. I'm just saying. Because like if there was a wanted ad for someone to judge people, 
There are some people in our churches that would do a really fine job. As a matter of fact, they think they'd do a better job than God would. Joseph says, I'm not here to judge. God will get you back how he sees fit, and I'm content to leave it in his hands. He had no desire to judge them. Instead, he could love them, he could see God's plan behind the scenes, and he could forgive them. So here's a question for you. How good are you at forgiving people? This is where you look at your shoelaces. How good are you at forgiving people? Um, that's a tough thing. Joseph's brothers thought they needed to manipulate and conjole to get him to be good at this. Are you the kind of person that if somebody crosses you, they're done? I see the smiles. I'll take that as nods of affirmations. Please don't raise your hand. Somebody cross you, are they done? Do you offer forgiveness? I don't know about you. Learning how to forgive better is probably one of the chief homework assignments that I have in my, my discipleship. Um, it's something that I, I have to do a lot of or something that I have to communicate to people that, hey, God's not done with you. He forgives you. There's, there's some opportunities for you. So completely outside of everything that I prepared, Friday night I found an article um, that I thought, this is awesome. So it's not in your notes. This is free. If it's helpful for you, this is good. Number one, forgiveness requires a lot of energy, especially if it's a big thing, okay, right? The bigger it is, the more emotions are involved. Forgiveness requires a lot of emotional energy. So learn how to develop a soft heart and thick skin. Soft heart, thick skin, because not every act of forgiveness requires maximum emotional energy. Listen, Marcy and I are coming up on 22 years this, uh, is, is it June? <laughs> uh, June 22nd. We're coming up on 22 years. You learn a thing or two in marriage about forgiving. At least she has, because <laughs> she's had a lot of it that she's had to do. Um, here's the thing that's crazy, all right? On almost a weekly basis, there is something that I do that probably frustrates her. And believe it or not, there might be on occasion something that she does that frustrates me. Much less than what I do, but it's part, we're sinners, that's what happens. It happens in your relationship too, if you're not lying. Um, it's, it's just what happens. And so, let's say something stupid happens. I'm not being sensitive to her, she's not being sensitive to me. I've had a bad day, she's had a bad day. I don't require her to go through all kinds of formality to get my forgiveness. She's got it. It's there. Now, I probably need her to recognize that she might need to ask, but I don't need her to grovel. I don't need her to go through like a 25-step plan to, to make sure that it happens. She has it before she even asks for it. Now, let's say there's something really bad, big that happens. That's going to require a lot of emotional energy. Well, guess what? My tank is full because I didn't have to use a whole lot on the little itty-bitty stuff. And some of us, make, we, we sound so sovereign that if you have offended me, shame on you. It doesn't require all that energy to just say, like, water off a duck's back. He who has been forgiven much does what? Forgives much. Soft heart, thick skin. Don't get so offended when people shock, sin against you. It's going to happen. Number two, learn how to not define people by how they've wronged you. 
That's a huge one. You know, I, I hear people say, well, I thought he was a good boy. And he cut me off. At, he took my parking spot at Walmart. Really? You're not undoing all of his testimony, his whole history. We define people by their faults. Just be really glad that not everyone does that to you because you'll be a really lonely person. If you define people by what they have done to you, give them a second chance because lots of others and God himself has done it with you. Is there anyone in here who's been a Christian for more than 50 years? We're getting Baptist in here, making you raise lots of hands, okay? More than 50 years, okay? How do you measure your spiritual growth? I'm going to assert to you that getting proficient at forgiving might be one of the best measures of spiritual maturity. It certainly was in Joseph's life. So make forgiveness a measure of your spiritual growth. How are you doing in that area? Allow forgiveness to be the natural overflow of a life that's saturated with the gospel. God in Christ had to forgive you. And forgiven people forgive others. Last, certainly not least, Learn that forgiveness means releasing, not forgetting. I have no control over amnesia. I don't know why I remember the things that I remember and can't remember the things that I want to remember. Like I can tell you the starting lineup of the 1974 Miami Dolphins, and if I could hit the delete button and like put your name in there, I might do that. It doesn't work that way. So apart from opening my cranium and getting rid of parts of my brain cells, I don't know how to forget stuff. And I think we, we expend a lot of emotional energy going, oh, I still remember, so I must not have forgiven. No, you're just not going to use it against somebody. It's a promise that I'm going to do my best not to use this against you. So forgiving doesn't mean forgetting, it just means releasing, just letting it go. Letting it go. We need to ask God for the grace to get better at forgiving others. Lastly, fourth and final point, we look at a... Uh, something that I think is just awesome. Mature believers never relinquish their faith in God's promises. Mature believers never give up on God's promises. Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26, we come to the last, last words of Joseph. He's had this encounter with his brothers. Everything is good, happy ending. Joseph is on his deathbed, verse 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. To the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The only believer who was embalmed, and the only story of a believer being put in a coffin in all of the Bible. Twice, in his last words, he reiterates and he emphasizes, God is coming. He's one day closer than he was yesterday. God will come and get you. Like Jacob, 
I want to be buried in the promised land. When Jacob dies, they mourn for him for 68 days, two days less than you would mourn for a pharaoh. And then they have this entourage to go up to the promised land to bury Jacob to come back to Egypt. Joseph could ask for the same privilege. He's, after all, the prime minister of Egypt. And he says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to embalm my body, wrap it up, put it in a coffin, and don't bury it. Because I don't want you to have to undig it when we're ready to move. Keep it mobile. Keep it agile. Keep it ready to go. And you know what? I want you guys to have to walk by my bones every day because my bones being here is testimony that someday you're going to have to pick this box up, throw it on your back, and you're going to have to move me because God's going to get us to the land that he has promised. His very last words are words of faith. God is coming. God will come to your aid. What gave Joseph the authority to say God is coming to your aid? Time after time after time, God had faithfully come to Joseph's aid. As a matter of fact, it might be the only lesson that Joseph actually learned. God will show up. God will deliver. God will continue to work forth His good. He's coming. So leave my remains uninterred as a testimony to God's deliverance. I want to be a living illustration to my descendants that I died believing God was coming back at any minute to deliver his people. For an Old Testament believer, that's pretty good eschatology. He's not saying, here's 18 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2018. He's saying he's coming back. We know it. We can take it to the bank, and we can trust it. That's why, interestingly, when Jesus is referred to in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, here's what the Bible says about all of Joseph's life. One sentence. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The disposal of his body is the crowning, uh, crowning act of his faith. Don't let me be buried in Egypt. God's going to give us this promised land that he has promised us. So here's the question. You will leave a legacy. No question about it going to be whether it's a good one or whether it's a bad one the legacy that you leave is it going to be a legacy of faith and here's what joseph knew god was in the business of doing good to save his people in his day and age from a famine in our day and age god doesn't just do the saving he allows his redeemed to be a part of the saving work to be a part of the proclamation of the gospel he knew that God had a plan to save people. He did not know specifically that it was going to be through Christ, but for us on this side of the cross, God's plan is even clearer, not simply surviving a disaster, but experiencing the abundant life that only Christ can give. That means today, if you're not a follower of Christ, that you need to be. And I can say that with all authority. You may not think that you need to be, but the Bible says, the Bible commands you to repent, to place your faith in Christ. Because whether you acknowledge him or not doesn't have one wit about whether he's going to judge you or not. He is. When you die, he will judge you. And based upon your love and action for him, your faith in Christ, it'll determine where you spend uh, your eternal destiny. For those of you that do believe, it means that you have a job to do of being an agent of talking about God's saving work. So there's application here for all of us when it comes to learning the difficult lesson that God is in charge of everything that happens and learning to love and trust him in the midst of, it's easy to love and trust him when things are good. It's hard to trust him when things are bad. 
like Joseph, to have trust in him, to see God's work behind the scenes to save his people, to be humble enough to recognize the grace that you have needed and the forgiveness that you have received, to be able to extend that to others and to have a persevering, never giving up, never expiring, never tiring faith in the promises of God. Would you pray with me, please?